Welcome to another episode of Money You Should Ask, where everyone has something they can teach you. I'm your host, Bob Wheeler. In this episode, we are going to explore why we do what we do when it comes to money. As a CPA for the past 30 years, wait, let me say 25 because that makes me sound younger. I have seen it all when it comes to money and emotions. And if you think I'm talking about my clients, I'm not. I'm talking about myself. My relationship with money has been, and sometimes still is, an emotional roller coaster. Maybe that's something you're also familiar with. Good news. You and I are not the only ones. Our next guest is going to share their money beliefs, money blocks, and life challenges as well. Buckle your seatbelt and enjoy the ride. Our next guest, Dr. John Demartini, is a world-renowned specialist in human behavior, a researcher, author, and global educator. He has shared the stage with some of the world's most influential people, including Sir Richard Branson and Deepak Chopra. As the founder of the Demartini Institute, Dr. Demartini has worked with entrepreneurs, board members, and CEOs at companies including IBM, Shell Oil, Merrill Lynch, and more. International best-selling author of The Values Factor and 39 other books, Dr. Martini has studied over 299 academic disciplines throughout the past 48 years. Revolving around maximizing human awareness, potential, and leadership, Dr. Martini has helped thousands of people around the world transform their life according to their highest values and create their life masterpiece. Dr. Martini, welcome to the show. It's so great to have you. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I was looking forward to it. Well, I'm super excited. There's so many different things I want to ask you, but I want to start with I've read your bio, and I know you're an open book. You had some challenges when you were a kid. So my question is, were you an only child? And what kind of environment did you grow up in with your parents, middle class, talked about money? What was that growing up for you? I was born in 1954 in Houston, Texas. I had amazing parents. You know, some people say they've got these parents that are all dysfunctional. Whatever. I had, I thought, magnificent parents. I had learning problems as a child and speech problems. And I was born with an arm and leg deformity. They were turned inward and had to go to a speech pathologist starting at age one and a half to about four. And I got out of my braces around four. I found out in school in first grade that I wasn't able to read properly, write properly because my hand was turned in and didn't seem to comprehend. So I had learning problems as a child. My father saw that by the time I was six, seven. And wanted me to be street smart just in case I wasn't going to be able to make it through school. And he made me accountable. So my first experience with money with my dad is I asked him, Dad, I want to earn enough money to buy a baseball glove and bat. And he said, well, have you mowed the yard? Yes. Have you trimmed the sidewalk? Yes. Have you cleaned the garage? Yes. Have you swept the sidewalks? Yes. Have you cleaned out the gutters? Yes. Have you weeded the flowers? Yes. Have you clipped the hedges? Yes. Have you shined my shoes? Yes. He said, well, son, I don't have anything else that I need done. So if you want to make money, you're going to have to be of service and find people in the neighborhood to serve. Go to the neighbors and see what you can do to help them. So I went to the neighbors and I started to do landscaping and mowing and weeding and whatever I could find. And then my dad saw that I bought a baseball glove and bat. <laughs> he said, where did you get it? And how did you get it? And I told him how I did it. And he said, well, what equipment did you use? 
I said, well, the equipment in the garage. He said, son, I have to teach you something. There's a thing called a depreciation schedule, and you're going to have to pay me for that use. So I owed him seven fifty, And then from there on out, I had to pay him for the use. So it was eroding my margins. But I still you know, got more creative, and I started hiring three kids and three kids and three kids. I had nine kids working for me by the time I was nine. And I was making like $45 net after all the expenses paid him off. And then he says, well, you got to learn how to save your money. So he bought me a coin collection set in a piggy bank, which I still have to this day in my office, never been <laughs> opened since 1963. Wow. <laughs> and he said, you got to learn how to save. So I started coin collecting. And then one day he says, now I want you to teach you what it's like to be in the real world. From now on, you're going to have to pay for clothing, food, and rent. I had to pay seven fifty a week. I was nine. Now I was making what would be equivalent of about five or six hundred dollars a day today with inflation. But at the same time, he charged me for that. And he said, But now that you're paying for things, you have the freedom. As long as you're home by nine o'clock at night, you can go anywhere you want on that new bicycle you bought and do whatever you want to do. Cause I used to drive like 26, 35 miles away and ride in different directions just to explore around the area. So my dad taught me how to be street smart because I didn't learn to read didn't really read until I was 18. I dropped out of school and left home at 13. So I had learning problems and speech problems, but he taught me how to be street smart. And so I'm very grateful for my dad. There was a lot of love in our family, but he was trying to make me street smart. I'm grateful to this day. So the piece that I really love about that is this accountability piece. And I imagine it's played a huge role in your life and probably a huge role in what you teach other people. I could be completely off base, but I feel like there's some real solid foundation there, some real gold. Yes. There was a text about the House of the Rockefellers, and it said, it said, don't rob people of dignity, accountability, responsibility, or productivity. Don't rescue and disable or enable people. Hold them accountable so they'll rise and gain dignity, accountability, responsibility, and productivity. And my dad wanted me to do that because he wanted me to know that the real world demanded sustainable fair exchange. Equity theory points to that. So my dad was a very savvy guy, and he wanted to make sure that I was ready for the real world, and even at a young age, because he saw I couldn't read and couldn't uh, write and speak properly. And did you always just have a spark that said, I want to do better? Because you had a lot of obstacles. At 17, you had a near-death experience. Things weren't looking so great. I mean, if you were putting it on a resume, not looking like the top resume that somebody's going to pick. <laughs> How did you, and what was it that kept you saying, you know what, I'm going to show up and I'm going to shine? When I was 13, I left home. 14, I hitchhiked out to California and down into Mexico to go surfing because Texas wasn't the best surf capital. <laughs> and I wanted to surf. And 15, I was able to get enough money on the beaches of California to fly from Los Angeles to Honolulu. I first lived under a bridge, then under a park bench and a bathroom, and then in a car, abandoned car and kept social climbing until I finally found me a tent to live in. And uh, I was a surfer. I lived on the North Shore of Oahu and surfed Pipeline and Sunset Beach and Miami Bay and those places. And then I almost died at 17, a very close call with, with almost dying with strychnine and cyanide poisoning. And also while surfing, my diaphragm stopped. But luckily, I was able to recover from that. And I was led to a health food store and eventually a yoga class to try to recover. And Paul C. Bragg, who was the one that initiated Jack Elaine and many others in America to do something extraordinary with their lives, Paul Bragg 
in one night, in one hour on the North Shore at Waimea Bay at a lecture, inspired me to believe that I could overcome my learning problems and that I could someday learn how to read and be intelligent. And that night, I saw a vision of me becoming able to read, able to speak, able to teach, because I thought teachers were intelligent. And I had a vision of me doing that and traveling the world and doing that. And that night, my life changed big time. I mean, big time. I saw a vision and I said, I'm going after that. And I tried to do that. I eventually left Hawaii. I flew back to LA. I hitchhiked back to Texas. I somehow went to take a GED, which is a high school equivalency test because I hadn't finished high school and I dropped out. And it was a miracle. I somehow guessed <laughs> and passed. I just literally closed my eyes. I said a statement that this guy gave me when I was 17. And I just filled in dots and think, I got nothing to lose. If I pass this thing, I've got me a high school degree. If I don't, I don't. And I, by God, I passed. So I tried to go back. I tried to go to school. I tried to go on to a junior college and I miserably failed. I got a 27 on my first test and I really drove home that day. And I went home and I cried in the living room under this Bible stand. And my mom said, came home from shopping. She says, what happened? So what's wrong? She hadn't seen me cry in years. I said, Mom, I guess I don't have what it takes. I guess, as my first grade teacher told my parents, I said, your son will never be able to read, write, communicate, go very far in life or amount to much. I said that to her and I said, I guess I don't have what it takes. I guess I'm going to have to go back and serve. And she said to me something only a mother could say. She said, put her hand on my shoulder and she said, son, whether you become a great teacher and travel the world like you dream." Whether you return to Hawaii and ride giant waves like you've done, or you return to the streets and panhandles above, I just want to let you know that your father and I are going to love you no matter what you do, boy. And that moment of love made my hand turn into a fist. I looked up. I saw that vision of me traveling and speaking and teaching. And I said to myself, I'm going to master this thing called reading and studying and learning. I'm going to master this thing called teaching and philosophy. I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm going to travel whatever distance. I'm going to pay whatever price to give my service of love across this planet. I'm not going to let any human being on this planet stop me. I get up. I hug my mom. I went into my room. I got a dictionary out, a Funkin' Wagman's dictionary. And I started memorizing 30 words a day. And my mom tested me on 30 words a day on spelling, pronunciation, meaning. And I worked and grew my vocabulary 30 words a day until I was able to absorb and read and understand. And then I started to excel. And I did not stop. After a year, that's 10,000 words. After two years, that's 20,000 words. Today, I've got a lot of words. <laughs> but what I did is I never stopped reading. I started reading and reading and reading 18, 20 hours a day. I lived in books and started devouring you know, book after book and anything I could do to try to catch up with the other kids. And I wanted to be a man of letters and be a, a scholar. And I've just never stopped. And 49 plus years later, here I am. And I'm now traveling the world. I've spoken in 158 countries. And I never gave up on that dream. And I'm still working on that dream. That's beautiful. So I love hearing about all the passion and the drive that you had. And I'm wondering, what would you say to those people out there that don't have a mom that's going to say, get up and fight and that you're lovable? or that feel like all things are stacked against them, or that they don't know how to read and write, what would you say to those people that would 
help give them that little bit of passion or motivation to pick up and say, you know what, I am going to bring my service of love and I am going to show up in the world fully and completely. What do you say to those people that don't have a lot of hope? I tell people that no matter what you've done or not done, you're worthy of love. And that no matter what, you have a skill, a talent, a meaningful yearning to do something extraordinary with your life and make a difference. And everybody has a set of priorities, a set of values. If you stick to the highest priority thing that you are most excellent at and target that and don't give up on that and just be relentless in the pursuit of it and build momentum towards what it is you want and don't turn back and let everything that happens to be on the way. Keep asking, whatever's happening to me, how's it helping me fulfill what's deeply meaningful to me? And don't let the outer world dictate your destiny. Let the voice and the vision on the inside be louder than all opinions on the outside and keep going. Just keep going. Get back up. Do it again. Get back up. Do it again. I had struggles when I was reading. I couldn't pronounce them. My mom said, that's not it. Do it again. Go back and do it again. And we were relentless in the pursuit of what was there. And if you do, there's no way you can fail if you don't give up. You just keep going. (laughs) I figured if I keep going out and speaking, eventually everybody else will die out and I'll be at the top if I live long enough. (laughs) Yeah, you got to stay in the game. You got to stay in the game. Don't pursue something that's not truly meaningful. Right. Because then you're not going to want to stay focused on it. It's the things that is truly, deeply meaningful that you want to pursue. You won't give up on that. Yeah. If it's really important to you, you don't stop. You just get back up and figure out again. Just like a child walking. It doesn't go, well, I fell the first time. I must not be meant to walk. It gets back up again. That's the attitude. Yeah, absolutely. Life is more than money, but money is in all aspects of our life. And I'm wondering, what's the balance and why do we need money you know, we're following our passion, we're bringing things to the world, and yet money is an undercurrent in a lot of this. You know, money is such a beautiful thing. I wrote a book called How to Make One Hell of a Profit, took it to heaven many years ago. And uh, <laughs> what's interesting is sometimes as a human being, we puff ourselves up, inflate ourselves, aggrandize ourselves, go into pride, and exaggerate ourselves to other people and look down on them. And that's not our real self. That's a persona, a mask, a facade that's an exaggeration of who we are as really a compensation for deep inside feeling the opposite. And sometimes we minimize ourselves and deflate ourselves and shame ourselves and we, you know, beat ourselves up because we're comparing ourselves to somebody we put on a pedestal or something. And that's not ourself. And anytime we exaggerate ourselves and look down on people or anytime we minimize ourselves and look up to people, we're not being our authentic self. And when we exaggerate ourselves, we tend to wake up our narcissistic, trying to get something for nothing. When we minimize ourselves, we tend to go into altruistic, trying to give something for nothing. And neither one of those are sustainable. Because if you try to give or get something for nothing, you or they eventually burn out and it's not fulfilling to them. Nature is trying to get us, and all social transactions are trying to get us into a state of authenticity where our heart is open and we love people and see them as equals. And the moment we do, we have sustainable, fair exchange. And money is a measurement of our sustainable, fair exchange and our authenticity. And so by using money as a measuring system to help us realize that if we care enough about humanity and have an equitable relationship with them, we will do something that serves them and we will be rewarded. And then we can measure that reward by the dedication of filling the needs of other people. There's never a lack of money to people who care about humanity. And the second we do, we are rewarded from that. 
I've learned how important it is to just make sure we don't put people on pedestals or pits, put them in our hearts and care enough about them to find out what their needs are and find a way of directly or indirectly serving them. When you do, you are rewarded. That's the key. I've traveled in many, many countries and asked people, how many of you have ever used Microsoft Windows? Every hand goes up around the world. Millions I've asked that to. The reason why he's a billionaire is because he's figured out something that everybody's benefited by. We can do the same if we care about people. Ask, what is the biggest need? If we don't fill our day with challenges that inspire us, it fills up with challenges that don't. Right. So we want to go and find challenges that the world is facing and find out what it is we can contribute to directly or indirectly with our talents or we can broker other talents and find a way of serving people. When we focus on that, we're not focusing on our problems. We're focusing on the world's solutions and we're rewarded to in correspondence. And how, with all the success you've had, inward and outward, how do you stay human? How do you stay humbled? How do you, and maybe it doesn't happen for you, but I know a little voice comes into my head sometimes is like, puff up a little bit. And I have to go, no, shut up, shut up. Right? How do you find that balance? How do you reel yourself back into your humanity? Well, your physiology, your psychology, and sociology around you and events in your life humble you when you go into pride pride before the fall. <laughs> so you're automatically going to let your physiology, psychology, and sociology give you a kick in the butt. And if you're down, people lift you up. And if you're above, they bring you down. You know, if I walk into a room and somebody says, oh, Dr. Martini, you're amazing or something like that. And if I humble myself and I'll say, well, you know, talk to my girlfriend, she has a different perspective. <laughs> and I minimize myself, they'll lift me up. Right. You know, they'll lift me up. But if I walk in and they go, you're amazing, Dr. Martini," And I go, I'm more amazing than you can understand. Who the hell do you think you are to, to even, you know, I'm profoundly more aware than you can even comprehend. Well, they'll cut me down immediately and bring me back into yeah. off the pride shit. So nature is constantly trying to get you authentic. And wisdom is letting your physiology and psychology whisper to you before the sociology and theology has to kick your butt. If you're not governed from within, you have to be governed from without. <laughs> I love that. Well, so let me ask you this piece because there are a lot of people out there, hey, I've done some work on myself, I've done the work, I've self-reflected, I know just enough to be dangerous. And so now here somebody's telling me, you know, really shift your mindset, really come into service for love and charity. And I know that, but there's a part of me goes, yeah, I know all that. I know I could probably do some more work, but I mean, I'm, I'm far enough along, right? So there's this ego part that comes in a little bit when I know just enough to be dangerous. So somebody out there listening saying, yeah, I know I could do better. I just know enough not to push myself further because I think I know better. How do we get out of our ego? Because I know I go into this kicking and screaming, but I know when I get vulnerable, when I get authentic, when I get real, the benefits are so bountiful. And yet I resist. Our true ego is not something to shun. That's our false ego. Right. Freud had a different idea. The true ego, the true I, the true self was not exaggerated. It was just reasonable. The it is the seed of passions and the signs that we are looking for immediate gratification and impulse, the animal nature. But the true nature of our nature merges when we live by highest priority. If we don't fill our day with the highest priority actions that inspire us, it's going to fill up with low priority distractions that don't. When we live by highest priority, we're more objective. When we're more objective, we're more neutral relating to other people. But when we're not living by our highest priorities, we go into our amygdala. Our amygdala wants to be addicted to pride and think it's right and get subjectively biased. 
And that's where we get trapped. It's so important to prioritize your life and learn the art of delegating lower priority things so you can liberate it to do the highest priority things and stick to the things. Because every time we do something to tie in priority, our self-worth goes up and we become poised and present and respectful of other people. But if we are not fulfilling what's highest in value, our unfulfillment puts us in our amygdala. Literally, our blood glucose and oxygen goes into the lower brain. And we now become addicted to pride and immediate gratification. And that's where we get into problems. Our addiction to pride and our immediate gratification and desire for consumption, something for nothing, that's where we run into our snags. It's about prioritization and living by what's truly meaningful and then realize that without people around us, we can't fulfill our lives. Caring about them with equity is the key to achievement. Yeah. You don't have a great leader in business or a great leader in anything if they're negating the people that are helping them get there. Yeah. Can you say a little bit more about loving people with equity? Yes. If we put people on pedestals, we'll minimize ourselves. Einstein said, if you're a cat trying to swim like a fish and envying somebody else and trying to imitate somebody else, you're going to beat yourself up. And most people are afraid of upsetting the herd and they want to be fitting in instead of stand out and they don't allow their authentic self to rise and be unique. How are you going to make a difference fitting in and being like everybody else? You're going to make a difference by standing out and being you. The authentic you, the magnificence of who you are as an authentic being is greater than all fantasies you may impose on yourself by trying to fit in. So giving yourself permission to not put people in pedestals or in pits. If you put them in pits, you're going to project your values onto them and expect them to live in your values, which is futile. And if you minimize yourself, you're going to expect to live in their values, which is futile. Futility it comes from judging. But when you love somebody with equity, you don't try to change you relative to them or them relative to you. You care enough respectfully to communicate caringly what you feel is important in terms of what they feel is important. And that's the game of communication, respect. That's called love. And when we do that, we end up with great rewards in life. Nature forces us to learn how to love. Every symptom in our business, every symptom in our life is trying to teach us how to be ourselves and how to love people. We all want to be loved and appreciated for who we are. But if we're puffing ourselves up or beating ourselves up, we can't be who we are. How are we going to be loved for that? We can't be loved for our authentic self until we're in our authentic self. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you. I just think that's so important. And I just really wanted to highlight that. What gives you great joy with all that you've got going on? What brings you pleasure? What makes you feel fulfilled? Doing what I do every day. I research, write, and teach seven days a week. And I travel because I'm sailing everywhere or flying. And that's what I love doing. I have delegated everything else. I haven't cooked since I was 24 years old. I haven't done domestic activities whatsoever. I don't drive. I'm driven in 32 years. (laughs) I don't do administrative. I don't do anything but teach, research, and write and travel. That's it. I'm useless. Even my girlfriend says, uh, you know, you're useless except for that. And I said, I know, but listen, I delegate everything. And if for some reason I'm doing my teaching, if I was to go and get George Clooney or Brad Pitt or Gerard Butler, if I was to get them to make love with you, would you still love me? And every time my girlfriend says, I would love you even more <laughs> because I delegate. That's supposed to be a bit. That's a joke. I'm just joking about that. My girlfriend just left this morning at 3 a.m to go back to Istanbul. So I just said goodbye to her. She's had to leave. But she's back and she's there right now. She's a singer and actress. Awesome. So in the process of doing that, you know, for me, what inspires me is doing what I set out to do when I was 17. And that is to learn every single thing I can that make a difference in people's lives and share that with people 
and get to do that every day. And I love doing it. I still to this day love doing that as much as I did when I started. Have you had any setbacks since that vision, since that incident at 17, since you got through your education and you started reading the books? As you started going out in the world, have you had any setbacks and how did you recover from that? Yeah, I had many setbacks. Setbacks in the sense of I had to calm down some of my ambitions and get realistic about it or delegate more. I learned to delegate more. <laughs> I realized you can get anything done if you surround yourself with people that are experts to help you do it. Right. So I basically learned a delegation. When I was 27 years old, I got a book by Alec McKenzie called The Time Trap. And I made a list of every single thing that I did in a day. Then I put down how much does it earn per hour? And then how much meaning does it have? And how much would it cost me to delegate it? And how much time do I spend on it? And then I prioritized all that. And then layer by layer by layer, I delegated everything off my plate. And my income went up tenfold. My prosperity went up tenfold. And I gave job opportunities to people. And I had people around me that were experts doing what I didn't want to do. And I wasn't great at. And I kept to my core competence, which is research and teach and write. And so as long as you're doing that, what you love, you are rewarded in the world. But most people haven't got that. They think, well, when you get wealthy, you can do that. No, I got wealthy because I did that. Right. That was the key. I helped other people get where they want to get in life by giving them job opportunities, doing what they love in a way that freed me up to do what I loved. And then I changed my life. And I also learned a very important thing. Until you value you, don't expect others to. So I started saving and then I started investing. And every time I increased my savings and investing, what I started to do every quarter, my business went up, the margins got to more profound, and all of a sudden financial independence was here. So I'm a firm believer that you got to value yourself. You have to value yourself in addition to serving other people. If you don't value yourself, the world's not going to value you. I know you pass that message and teach that message to people that do workshops, that read, that you teach to. How do we teach that to the next generation? How do we have that conversation with children that gives them enough so that they're accountable and all those things that your dad gave you and yet give them the information so that they can actually maybe bloom sooner, reach capacity more fully? Well, in my case, I learned from Albert Einstein. He was one of my guys that I loved studying. And, and he said the greatest teacher is exemplification. First, live it. If you go and live it, people are going to watch it. They're going to see that there's congruency and authenticity, and they're going to see that there's those actions work, and they're going to mirror it with their mirror neurons. It'll be the chameleon effect. So that's the first thing. That way you can walk your talk and not limp your life. The second thing is to articulate it in a way that matches people's values, because not everybody has a high value on wealth building or saving money and stuff. They have a value on everything else. I was speaking in, in South Africa at a success summit to about 5,000 people with Richard Branson. And I asked people, how many of you want to be financial independents? Every hand went up, even legs went up in the air. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, all right, great. And I said, how many of you are financial independent? Most of the hands went down. There's only a handful of people kept their hands up. And I said, interesting, you have a fantasy about having financial independence, but you're not actually doing it. So I'm going to show you why. And I said, I want to give you $10 million US. And that's a lot to them down in South Africa, right? So I said, I'm going to give you $10 million. Imagine you got it. You got a piece of paper in front of you. You got 60 seconds. If you had 60 seconds, I want you to write down the 10 things you would do if you had $10 million. And you got 60 seconds. On your mark, get set, go. Right. And they quickly write down what they would do with it. 
And at the end of it, I said, now pass it to the person to your left. And now go in and calculate how much of those that $10 million is still in assets that's going to work for you and how much got spent on consumables that went depreciated. And all of a sudden, they realized between 20 and 80% of that room, 20 and 80% of the money that they received, $10 million, went to consumables that depreciate. I said, as long as you have a higher value on consumables that depreciate than you do on assets that depreciate, you really don't have an intention to build financial wealth. You have an intention to have a lifestyle. And lifestyles of the rich and famous, and you're going to live beyond your means, and you're going to have debt, and then you're going to be paying interest on debt instead of having interest to pay you in assets. And I had to wake them up about what is really an asset, and what is a liability, and what does it really mean, and do you really have a value in wealth building, or is it just words? And really ground them on what it takes to have money work for them, because if not, they're a slave all their life, and they can become its master by giving up immediate gratification for long-term returns. And people have to be patient and get out of their amygdala, which is the immediate gratification center, and get into their executive center with a strategy long-term to build the finances that they want. And the moment they do, their lives change because they gave up, like the marshmallow experiment, they gave up immediate gratification for a long-term return. If you live for the lifestyle now, you're going to have a decrescendo later on in life. If they start to realize, go and pay for asset. But if they don't, they're going to be a slave to money, and they're going to have a decrescendo in their life instead of a crescendo. And the people that are patient and let the crescendo go, eventually their lives financially go up, and they can contribute philanthropically. If not, they're going to go down, and they're going to depend on their next generation to take care of them. So it's wise to value serving people and value yourself and value what money is offering. Money is basically a way of measuring your willingness to think in terms of your soul instead of your immediate gratifying senses. And how do we get out of story? Like, right, I'm in that story. Well, no, I need these consumable goods and it's going to be, and that's only for rich people and I'm not quite there. And one day I'm gonna. When people say that to me, I said, stop your story because your story is not going to get you. You're going to be a victim of history instead of a master of destiny. If you play that game, stop the story, look at what's priority. When you start to manage money wisely, you receive more money to manage. That's how it works. Money circulates through the economy from those who value at least to those who value at most. If you don't value it and don't value and appreciate money, it will never appreciate in value for you. If you depreciate money, it will go down in value. Because if you wanted to buy those things, you're not valuing money, you're buying, you're valuing those things instead of the having your money work for you. Mm. So it's just a mind state. And the excuses aren't going to get you anywhere. What's going to get you somewhere is taking highly prioritized action strategically and doing the things that have proven to work. And there is a science to it. And it's not that hard. It's not rocket science. I've taught thousands, I mean, millions of people how to do it. And I got tons and tons and tons of people, thousands, thousands, thousands of people who have done it. All my kids are doing it. I've watched them. They've learned how to do it. They take a portion of whatever they earn and they put it away and there they earn more money and then they put more away and then they earn even more money and they put more away because they're managing money wisely. Yeah. And when they do, they receive more to manage. That's such an important thing because I know we love our stories. We know them so well and we love to tell them. And the sooner we can let go of them and actually move past story, we can, it's all there. It's all there if we want it. Well, anytime we look outside ourselves for our problems, we're going to look outside ourselves for our solutions. But if we look inside and realize it has nothing to do with the world around us, it has everything to do with our perception, decisions, and actions. And those are the three things we have control over in life. We can transform our perceptions, our decisions, and our actions. 
And there's nothing stopping us from that. Nothing. All that is excuse. The reality is William James said the greatest discovery of his generation is that human beings can alter their lives by altering their perception, decisions, and actions. We have the ability to change our perceptions. And if we do, our lives change. Mine changed the night I met Paul Bragg. I was a long-haired hippie surfer kid living in a tent who couldn't read, was a high school dropout, was living, you know, literally day-to-day on about $2 a day. And my life changed. And today, I, I have a completely different life, all because I decided that I was going to start filling my mind with the highest priority ideas by the greatest minds who ever lived. And I was going to start applying the principles that I learned from those who have mastered their skills and start to change my life. And if I give myself excuses, I won't get there. But if I give myself priority actions, I will build momentum and it will be destined. Did you ever follow back up or have any more communication with Paul Bragg? Or was that one hour it? That was the only time. Well, I got to spend time with him for the next three weeks. He had low classes in the morning at 730 in the morning in Darusi in Waikiki area. And I had hitchhiked across the island to go be with him every morning. So I did three weeks with him. And then that was it. I never saw him again. But I know his daughter and his daughter attended my breakthrough experience. I was teaching a breakthrough experience at the Waikiki Hyatt. And in the back of the room, a little four foot seven height woman came in with a hat on and a pink outfit in the back. And I took a break and she came up to me and she grabbed my hands and she said, that was inspiring. She said, you remind me of my father. I'm Patricia Bragg. Wow. Wow. That is so amazing. I never saw him again, but I'm still friends. And Patricia Bragg contacted my daughter and encouraged her to follow in my what I do today. My daughter is teaching now and also doing it and saving her money and becoming, she's going to be a multimillionaire without a doubt because she's working and serving people and working efficiently. It's amazing. And what's amazing and what I really want people to hear is you took an hour out of your life to hear a message that then you took and took three more weeks to just sort of fine tune and you took off from there. And it didn't take you 800 years I mean, it certainly, there was a lot of other things that at play, but that moment of messaging, that moment of inspiration was literally a choice to go and hear somebody talk and take in what they had to offer. That night was so inspiring. When he spoke and he took us through this guided imagery meditation kind of experience, I closed my eyes and I went into this meditation and I saw a vision. That vision is painted in my office. It's a five by four painting by a famous painter, painted what I saw. We captured in a painting. So inspiring. I looked around the room and I came out of my little meditation, opened up my eyes. And there's not one person there with dry eyes. Everybody had some sort of inspired vision. I wish I could follow it up on all those people. I never got to see those people. All I know is that my life changed that night. And I know when I read the biography of Jack Elaine, Jack Elaine was impacted by Paul Bragg. Steve Jobs was impacted by Paul Bragg. Donald Trump was impacted by Paul Bragg. Gloria Swanson. I mean, I could go down. There's about 139 famous people that were all impacted by this one guy. The Kellogg Corporation that makes all the cereals was impacted by this man. I mean, there's amazing people that were impacted by this guy. And he was inspired and he was an enthusiasm for health culture. He opened up a thousand health food stores across America to try to help people live more healthy lives. My life changed because I met one man and I had a dream to do that with other people for other people. I love that story. I have to ask, is legacy important to you and why? 
You know, I read a Roman poet and politician, Seneca, and I don't know if you've gotten to read any of Seneca, but Mm -hmm. Seneca said, you measure an individual by their most distant ends, and the magnitude of space and time and their innermost dominant thought will determine the conscious evolution they've obtained. And so I basically realized, and I wrote, in 1999, I wrote a posthumous biography of how I want to be perceived a thousand years from now. And I wrote it all out, exactly how I want to be perceived, what Dr. Martini did. In 2008, I was asked to speak at a Waldzell conference with 200 other people around the world, with 12 individuals speaking. Muhammad Yunus, the Dalai Lama, there's a Wolf Singer, a number of people there. And at the end of the presentation, this is at the Milk Abbey in this magnificent Sistine-like chapel with media coverage from around the world. It was a most amazing conference. At the end of it, they took us into the library at the Milk Abbey and put us in a semicircle and handed us a stainless steel cylinder about a foot and a half long, foot long maybe. And in there was 365 quotations and my Demartini method, which is a conflict resolution process, which I was speaking on. And they put it in calligraphy paper, put a golden ribbon around it and sealed it airtight. And we processed it down to the Infinity of Divinity library shelf in this special vaulted room that they store rare manuscripts for a thousand years and put it in the Infinity of Divinity library shelf to be stored for a thousand years. So I'm a believer that if we're immortal souls, we can set immortal goals. And my goal was making a difference in a thousand years from now is now sitting in that abbey. My work is sitting there and it'll be opened a thousand years from now. So I'm a firm believer that what we set in our mind can become our reality. And I am a firm believer that most people are waiting to see what happens instead of making what happens. And living by design, not duty, is way more powerful. So you want to give yourself permission to design your life and define how you want to fill your day and how you want to fill your week and month and year and decade and generation and life. Because if you don't get up in the morning and dedicate your life to what's inspiring to you and the fulfillment and financial dreams that you have, somebody's going to get up and do what they want. And if you're not living by design, you're living by duty, as I said. And if any area of your life you're not empowered in, people are going to overpower you in. So don't be a victim of history. Be a master of destiny. Take command of your life. I'm absolutely certain it can be done. I lived literally under a park bench at one time. I used to go into diners and find food on tables and eat. So I know what it's like to have nothing. I live in the biggest yacht in the world today, and I'm absolutely certain that you can change your life, and it has nothing to do with anything but your actions, perceptions, and decisions in life. So don't blame anybody on the outside. Go inside, be resourceful, and take command of your destiny. And it's not to simplify it, but it really is that see your future, be your future. If you can envision it, if you can manifest it. and Absolutely. It can be that simple if you're willing to let go of ego. Well, what we do is we subordinate to outer authorities, right. mothers, fathers, preachers, teachers, conventions, traditions, and mores, instead of allowing the inner authority and your own divine connection to guide you with inspirations towards what it is you really want to contribute in the world. We all want to make a difference. I was speaking at Krugersdorp Prison, in maximum security prison in South Africa, to 1,000 uniformed inmates there for 25 years to life. And I asked him a simple question because I had six guards around me and I had the Gordon there and I was in maximum security, three stories underground. And I asked him, how many of you, no matter what you've been through or gone through or been through in your life, how many of you deeply want to make a difference? Every hand went up spontaneously in one hundredth of a second. It's innate within us to want to make a difference and to contribute. And I don't care what we've been through, deep inside that soul's yearning to do something magnificent. So don't let anything 
Nothing on this planet interfere with that. When you have a vision greater than your obstacles, your obstacles turn into opportunities. I do so believe that we all want to make an impact on the world. And I think there's a lot of shame that gets associated with that. People shame us for saying, we want to empower the world. Who are we to make a difference? And the truth is, all of us are enough to make a difference and be allowed to have that desire. And I do believe we deep down, we all want to be in connection. We all want to be loved. And we all want to make a difference. We want to have impact and know that we mattered. Absolutely. Can I share one story real quick? Yeah. When I was 18 and I started to go back to school and I started to read and get my vocabulary and I was starting to pass, I sometimes carpooled with this other guy who was an engineer or, you know, wanting to study engineering. And he had a dream to build magnetic trains and he designed them and he studied it inside and out. And I had a dream to be a teacher traveling the world. And we would talk on the way there to school and we'd talk about our dreams. And one day he had another friend join us in the car, he sat in the back seat, who was a bit pompous and a bit arrogant. And he said in the, from the back seat, you guys are crazy. You come from a small town. You know, you don't even know how to read Demartini. You know, you're just learning how to do this. You guys are pipe dreamers. You're going to probably work in a cotton factory. Come on, get real, man. And he put me down and he put the other guy down. And so we decided we weren't going to give him a ride. <laughs> <laughs> Good choice. <laughs> We thought that his opening of his mouth was at the wrong end. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, we went about our business, went on our way. The gentleman went on to make magnetic trains they're used today. Now, about two years ago, I was doing a webinar, my own webinar. And all of a sudden, that guy in the back seat came on the webinar and he typed in a message. I won't give you the first word or the first few words he said. You friggin' did it. <laughs> I didn't give up. Yeah. So they laugh at you. They ridicule you. They put you down because they envy your commitment. Do it anyway. Do it anyway. And the people that ridicule you will be the people that will eventually respect you. I promise you. I so appreciate you sharing that story because it does come full circle. Even if we don't always know it, it does come full circle. It does come full circle. Well, Dr. Martini, we are at our Fast Five, which is brought to you by Cube Money. Cube Money is an envelope system made easy. It's real-time financial awareness without the hassle of tracking expenses and carrying cash. And I always feel like that's such an abrupt shift, but we're going to shift the energy. And I've got five questions just top of mind. And here we go. What's a financial habit of yours that doesn't always serve you? You know, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a firm believer that no matter what I do or not do, it's on the way, not in the way. So I don't judge myself for my actions. And anyway, everything is taken care of. I don't do anything. I don't even do transactions. I have people taking care of them. So I don't have anything that I can screw up on. <laughs> <laughs> and how do you know to trust those people, right? Like you've got people doing that. Cause I was going to ask you, do you look at your finances? How do you know that you've got people around you that you can trust? It's all automated. Okay. It's automated and delegated. And the people I delegate to, if it's not highest on their value, where they're yeah. absolutely inspired to do it, I don't hire them. Well, there you go. And I make sure that they're, I make sure that they're getting a win out of it. If it's not a win-win, they're going to want to get something for nothing. If I do a win-win, they're going to want to continue to do it. That's the key to sustainable fair exchange. Yeah. Your bio says you travel 360 days a year out of 365, in case anybody doesn't know how many days are in a year. Do you plan your fun time? Do you schedule it out? 
but my fun time is my life. When you're doing what you love, why you love what you do, you don't need to escape. <laughs> my fun time is what I do. You know, I don't have to work. Yeah. I do it because I love doing it. I love making a difference in people's lives and watching the transformation and getting the letters from around the world. This is what I love doing. Now, I may go off and as I sail into some place or I may go walk on an island. The other day, I walked with the monkeys and went down a river, you know, on rapids. I do some things like that. But what I love doing is this, and I do this pretty well seven days a week, most of the day. So that's my fun. I don't need to escape. I don't have Monday morning blues, Wednesday hump days, thank God it's Friday's week friggin' ends. I don't need to get a break or have a vacation or, you know, retire. None of that means anything to me. I'm 67 and I'm still frank and going. I don't have this desire. I don't have to work. I do it because I love to, not because I have to. Yeah, absolutely. What is your favorite investment, like return on investment? Like, is it, you know, investing in notes or what gives you joy and excitement on your investments? Well, I started doing index funds in 1987. I started investing in 1983, 82, 83, 87. I did an analysis and I realized I'm going to lower my cost to lower my turnover rate. I'm just going to decrease my taxable capital gains. And I put it in index funds and I've been investing in index funds ever since. And they've made me fortunes. And I'm very grateful for all the companies that S&P 500 has and that Russell 2000 has. And I just keep putting it away. I, I don't spend it. I just keep it growing and it just pays me and, and I reinvest the dividends and I let it grow and, and it's all destined for my philanthropic objectives and I put it into those objectives. That's my goal. And they're happening. That's what's happening. I put together a Demartini Prize to compete with the Nobel Prize and the Templeton Prize. So that's where it goes. Awesome. I know that you don't drive and all these other things are taken care of. Do you have a favorite car that you haven't bought yet? Or is that anything that's of interest? I had cars in the past. You know, I've had the Rolls Royce and I had the, all that stuff, but I gave all that up. I don't do that. I'd rather have somebody else take care of that for me. The last time I had a, a Rolls Royce, I had a guy named Bob in Australia drives it around today. <laughs> he uses it for business. I don't participate in driving. I don't even know what the names of the cars are half the time now. I just have somebody who takes care of my transport and I have a concierge person. I learned a long time ago, delegate everything that you're not inspired to do if you want an inspiring life. Yeah. Because if you're not filling your day with the highest priority things, it's going to lower you. Anytime you do lower priority things, you devalue yourself. Anytime you do the highest priority things, you value yourself. So why would I want to do anything less than what I love doing, which is teaching and researching and writing and traveling? That's awesome. And traveling is amazing. Let me ask you this. We are at our M&M moment, our money and motivation sweet spot. Can you give the listeners a practical financial tip or a piece of wealth wisdom We've talked about investing, just something that people can say, yeah, oh, I could do that. I can do that starting today. Whatever you earn in a day, don't wait for extra because entropy takes over finances. And if you don't take away and take a portion of it off top and pay yourself first and put it into some sort of investment that's appreciating in value, if you don't do that, you're going to have unexpected bills eroding the potential for that. And you're going to keep coming up with reasons why you can't do it. Just go and have it automated. Go take out of your bank, put a portion of it into investments and start investing and watch what happens. Once you start doing that and it starts growing, you'll be like a child. You want to nurture it. You want to grow it. And it starts working for you. And every day you do that, once you build up a cushion, once you start building it, you're going to eventually realize you don't have to go to work because you have to. You go to work because you love to. And that's when you give your greatest service. That's awesome. And it does. It becomes addictive in a good way when you see that money start to grow. It's sort of how much more can I grow this week? It's sort of fun. 
Well, you know, Dr. Demartini, you've shared so much information. And I think really my biggest takeaway is the piece about service of love, coming from a place of doing things that benefit other people, going above and beyond ourselves. And this loving with equity, I think, is so important because I think so many times we do measure and we're not equitable in the love that we give or receive. And just to have that intentionality, that awareness. And I really appreciate this piece about accountability. Like we are accountable and we have the ability to change our lives with just shifting our mindset if we want it. Well, like I said, the magnificence of who you truly are is far greater than any fantasies you'll impose. You know, on my website, drdmartin.com, there's a value determination process. It's free. It's private. I hope people will consider going to it, taking 30 minutes of their time to answer 13 questions to look at what's really important, not what they think it should be, not what they wish it would be, but what their life demonstrates they're committed to so they can get clear on it. If you don't know where you are, you don't know where you're going, you don't have a strategy to get there, you're not likely to go places. So this helps you start that journey. And I would encourage you to do that because it really does make a difference to get really clear and set real goals with real objectives according to real priorities on a daily basis. Your self-worth goes up, your net worth goes up. Well, we will put your information in in the show notes, but can you just tell us again your website is? drdmartini.com, D-R-D-E-M-A-R-T-I-N-I.com, drdmartini.com. You can spend the rest of your life seeing what's on there. It's filled with information and education. Thousands of podcasts and newspapers and magazines and radio and television and YouTube. It's just, it's there to be an education source for people to go and do something extraordinary with their lives. Well, that is awesome. We'll make sure we put that up. I'm assuming that they can find your books there as well if they want to yep. go out and read those great books. And I so appreciate you taking the time today to share with our listeners and really just keep paying it forward. So. Thank you so much, Dr. Martini. Thank you. Thank you for the great interview. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Did you learn something new about your relationship to money today? Maybe you have a friend who has some financial blocks or beliefs that are holding them back. Please share this podcast so they too can get off the roller coaster ride of financial fears and journey towards financial freedom. To learn how to have a healthy relationship with money, visit themoneynerve.com. That's nerve, not nerd. We'll be back next week with another perspective on money and the emotions that bind us. <laughs>